0: good morning church family hope you had a good thanksgiving my name is luke johnson and i'm on staff here as one of the pastors this is my wife lauren and she is a nurse and she's going to read our scripture this morning from acts chapter 2 verse 37 through 41 now when they heard this they were pierced to the heart and said to peter and the rest of the apostles brethren what shall we do Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Thank you appreciate that. Thank you. Let's take our Bibles and uh, let's look this morning in... Acts chapter two will be in verses thirty-seven through forty-one. Just wanted my wife to join me this morning, and I know some of you. Uh, spent a lot of time with family. Maybe uh, you're in town visiting family this morning. Thank you so much for worshiping with us. Uh, just to let you know it is a, you officially. Um, I'm giving you the green light. You can start listening to Christmas music now. Okay. Now some of you cheat, and some of you've been listening to it since like uh, you started Hallmark in um, in in July. Okay. You have an issue. You need to talk to me or just and immediately. Um, Ryan can also give counseling on that. But anyway, it's okay to listen to, to watch Christmas music. Now, I was talking to a friend last night, and uh, he said, as soon as the Halloween decorations came down, like the same day, he said his wife looked to him and said, all right, the tree's going up today. And he was like, nah, let's let's wait. And she's like, no, the tree's going up today. He's like, no, no. He's a little more firm. He said, no, let, let, let's wait a little. She said, it wasn't a question. The tree is going up today. Anyway, I'm one of those guys. My tree's not up yet. And if your tree's not up yet, uh, i I feel you. But I'll be listening to Christmas music even though it is November. Acts chapter 2, we're going to be looking at five verses today. Justin set us up last week, and what a great message last week for us to be able to look in greater detail that Jesus of Nazareth, who walked on this earth for 33 years, is now enthroned reigning at the right hand of God. For all eternity, he as son as God, with Father and Spirit, but he has been exalted back, given the glory that was with him before the foundation of the world, and he is ruling and reigning and It was important for us to spend an extra week there because oftentimes we can think of Jesus in an American or a cultural setting that he is a an American deity or a Western Hemisphere deity, but the scripture says that's not the case at all. We were probably one of the last ones to hear about him, right? This is the Lord of every man, Lord of every woman, the Lord of every human, the Lord of Jupiter and Saturn, the Andromeda galaxy. He is ruling and reigning over the entire universe. And the Bible even says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is this Christ. And so Peter has preached And we've spent probably a month in this, and this week in small groups, you're going to have a question at the end just to kind of think through this entire setting, because everything that we have talked about has happened in one day. This entire chapter 2, verse 1, through where we'll end in 41, this is all one day. The Spirit falls on the apostles and the believers in the upper room, about 120, they begin to speak in known languages. They begin to get out on the street. A crowd assembles. Peter preaches. He explains as Justin walked us through. He preached Christ. And when he gets to the end, this crowd is cut to the heart. Literally, they are, they are knifed in the heart. The Bible says they were pierced in the heart. And so as a result, they cry out, what shall we do? Now, Justin walked us through last week. The response to that. And the response to that was... They were like, oh snap, we missed it. We have killed our Messiah. The Christ that was promised to us from Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. The God we claim to serve is the God that we nailed to the tree. And right now, he's exalted until all of his enemies become his footstool and we're his enemies because we killed him. Brothers, what shall we do? Now, I think it's interesting here for us to note and remember that the crowd that's crying out is a religious crowd. They're a devout crowd because they've traveled. They've either come for Passover and stayed till Pentecost or they've come to Pentecost. And yet this same religious crowd was guilty of rebellion and crucifixion of the Son of God. And now they were under judgment, man, man. How pertinent is that for us in South Mississippi where so many times those that claim Jesus are the ones who buy their life living as if he doesn't exist at all. And this was this crowd that was crying out, crucify, crucify, and now praise God, they have been cut to the heart and they are saying, what shall we do? Now I want you to notice before we get into Peter's response, I want you to notice that conviction preceded what he told them to do. So there was a sense of their need before he told them what they needed to do. Our failure oftentimes in American evangelism is that we tell people how to be saved and we never tell them why they need to be saved. So if Dr. Deloach just says, hey, take this medicine, some of us will be like, oh, he's a doctor, I'll take the medicine. But I'm going to take the medicine when it becomes clear to me how jacked up I am in my great need for the medicine. When I'm convinced that there really is something wrong in me, then I will take what is needed for me. A great preacher of old that a lot of us younger dudes look up to is a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a medical doctor, and then he went into ministry. As a young man in his mid-20s, he left ministry, and went or left a medical field and went into ministry. And he was such a good doctor that even though he pastored in London, years later, the royal family would call on him to attend to some of their medical needs. He, you know, he was a pastor and a doctor combined. We call him the, the, the good doctor. What brought him to Christ was when he was an apprentice serving with one of the most notable doctors in England, he had access to private medical files that he would review and be able to study. And what he found was, is that all these famous people, these rich people, these notable people in England had crazy, horrible medical conditions inside them that they hid with their wealth, their notoriety. And what happened was, Lloyd-Jones began to be personally convicted that there was a deep problem, deeper than cancer, deeper than a sexually transmitted disease, and it was the problem of the human heart. And you see, that's what's happening here in Acts chapter 2. The cry is, what shall we do? Because they are now convinced that they have a problem, and so they are crying out, what shall we do? Salvation comes to those who first understand their great need? That's a great question for us to ask in our own life. Why do we believe in Jesus? Is it because we just tacked him onto our life or is it because we became convinced that nothing but him could fix the condition of our hearts? I find it interesting here that Peter didn't preach heaven. He didn't preach happiness. He didn't preach prosperity. He didn't preach blessing. Justin walked us through the only thing that he preached here was Christ. (laughs) And Christ is sufficient. The preaching of who Jesus was and the preaching of what they had done to him brought conviction. And so now we get into the passage this morning. I do want to make note before we actually look at what Peter said. I want you to see first what Peter did not tell the crowd. And I'm going to put all these up at once. Because this is important. Because in, in our day, and not just in our day, in, in previous generations... The, the battle of the church to preach the gospel to the world is to really view the world as hostile to God, and what we like to do is we like to water down our view of ourselves, and in some ways we like to up, uh, we like to exalt and raise up what people think of us, and so what happens is when the word of God stands in contrast to culture to sinful humanity. Either A, we don't want to believe it's that bad, or we don't want to present it as that bad in, in, in case someone were to look at us like we're crazy. And so what we've done is we have watered down the condition of the human heart, and we've watered down God's command to the human heart to be fixed. And I want you to see that Peter didn't do this. Now, here's some things that he did not tell them. I'll just throw them up at once, and you'll see how applicable they are. So he, so he didn't tell them to be a better person. <laughs> He he didn't tell them that they needed moral improvement. He didn't tell them that if they got just a little better, they would fix this great guilt and shame that they were feeling. So applicable in our day, right? We're we're convinced that when we get to heaven, there's going to be scales, and here's a good side and a bad side. And if our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds, then we get in. And magically, we think like Peter's chilling at the gate, right? Hey, Peter's not there. He's worshiping at the feet of Jesus. Okay, That's that's where Peter is. But there's no scale in heaven, and our moral deeds, our good deeds, will not be weighed against our bad deeds, because the Bible says the very best thing that we can drum up is like garbage. It's like a filthy, nasty rag in God's sight. Our righteousness can never, our works can never meet God's standard. So Peter did not say, try a little harder, do a little better, and you'll be right. He also didn't tell them that they needed to go just to a religious service, and they'd be Okay. Many people in our day think that if they just get back, quote, in church, that will fix their problem. Get on Highway 84, take a left at the red light, pull into the, uh, the Roses parking lot, open up the door to Little Caesars, and go stand in there for five hours. You will not become a $5 hot and ready. It does not happen. Cross the street, go to wards, stand in there. Now I know I'm a big one, but you won't become a big one, okay? Go to Vicks, you won't become a blue plate special. Go to car lights. stand there among the three cars now that are in car lots, right? Simply being somewhere does not transform you into what you ought to be. Peter didn't say just go to church. He didn't just tell them to acknowledge God's existence. In our day, in our place, Some of us probably know people that are atheists or agnostic. We meet those people, we love them, we serve them, we have compassion for them, and we share truth with them. And we pray that God would change their heart. But he did not call them to a generic belief in God. He just didn't say, if you just acknowledge God's presence and acknowledge God's existence, you're good. Because he's been preaching... For the last 20 verses, about a personal God who's come down from heaven, who they killed. <laughs> this isn't God in the abstract. This isn't God in the generic. This is God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. The, the, the verse in James always shocks me when, when you read it in James chapter 2. It, he says, you believe in God? Well, good. The demons believe that. And they are more respectful and more fearful of God than you are because they tremble when they think of God. So Peter didn't call them to some generic belief in God. He also didn't call them, and this is applicable to us, to repeat a prayer. He did not give them, as we'll see in just a minute, some formula, some ABC and you're okay deal. And the reason for that is that God is the one that they had offended. And that God, as we just sang a minute ago, was the one that they should change and treasure and so there's no just like neat little cookie cut cookie cutter drive-through formula that fits when you've offended a holy God. The only thing that he takes is the sacrifice of his son. Faith in that. Turning from sin. So Peter is not about to just tell them, A, B, C, do it exactly like this and you're good. We're going to see that... Even though there is specific commands, those specific commands look the same in a lot of ways, but they they look different in a lot of ways too. And simply telling someone, say this, say this, say this, squeeze my hand if you mean it, go through some external ritual and you're good, is not found in the New Testament. Peter didn't tell them this. I think it's so very important in our evangelism. That we, A, don't make it harder on people than what it is. At the same time, don't make it easier on people than it is. It actually is a narrow gate in a hard way. So what did Peter say? They've been brought to conviction. And man, how awesome would it be in one of our gatherings if somebody just stood up and said, be quiet, tell me what I must do to be saved. How awesome would that be? That's what they did. They, They almost, in a sense, interrupted the message. Brothers, what shall we do? Isn't that interesting in verse 37 that it says they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles. So maybe they weren't standing there in front of Peter. Maybe they were off to the side and they, they grabbed Matthew or they grabbed Andrew or, or they grabbed James or, or they just shouted at Peter. What are we to do? Peter tells them over the next several verses, the response is to repent and believe. Big truth number two this morning, I want you to see, and we're going to camp out here. Peter commanded the crowd to repent. Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent. That's where it started. I don't know how this like enveloped into a religious cuss word, <laughs> but it almost has. It's almost associated with, you'll offend people if you tell them to repent. Repent first words of Jesus in the Gospels was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. The last words of Jesus to his church in the book of Revelation is, repent. The prophets preached repentance. Jesus preached repentance. John the Baptist preached repentance. The apostles preached repentance. All throughout the book of Acts, there is this word repent. Well, what does it mean? Literally in the Greek, it's the word metatoneo, and it means to change one's mind. To change one's mind. That is, to be brought to a place where your heart is convicted and so therefore your mind is convinced that change needs to take place. So the word means, change your mind. Change your mind. Be brought to a place where you our understanding that something needs to change. And it doesn't need to be one part of your life. It needs to be a complete change. This is what the word means. So what shall we do? And he just basically says, change your mind, turn. It, it's the idea of an about face. It's the idea that you're going in one direction And therefore, you come to a place of understanding that change needs to take place, and so you do an about-face. You turn, and you start going in the other direction. It's, It's a way, I'll have it on the screen for you. This is the way to understand it. It is to be convicted and convinced to turn from something. So I'm going in one direction, and I'm turning from something. But I'm also convinced and convicted that I'm just turning from something, I'm turning to something. So I'm not just aimlessly turning, Well, where will I go, what, what, no, the idea is I'm going in one direction, and I'm turning, and I'm turning with purpose toward something else for a new direction. That's what this word means, repent. Now in the context of what we've studied the last month, what were they called to repent of? their attitude towards Jesus Christ, their view of Jesus Christ, not the carpenter that proclaimed himself to be God. This is the Lord of every man. This is the Messiah. This is the one the prophets prophesied about. This is God in the flesh. And Peter says, turn from your view of who Jesus is and turn to who God says Jesus is. Change your mind concerning the person of Christ. They were also called to repent and, and, and turn from their relationship to Christ. I was proceeding in this way and he was my enemy. I would rejected him as Messiah. And now I'm being called to turn to believe that he's my Messiah, that he's my Lord. find it interesting here that Peter is calling them to total change, complete change. Thought and behavior come together. And so I am so convinced of something that I change my direction about it. Now we should mention in the scripture, there is something called ineffective repentance. There's worldly sorrow. It's almost like the idea that you get busted and you, you express remorse and grief over the fact that you've been caught and yet you never turn. You you feel sorrowful because you're in a difficult situation, but you're not motivated to actually turn. The Bible says that that is not repentance. The scripture for this, if you want to write it down, is 2 Corinthians 7.10. 2 Corinthians 7.10. But it says, Godly sorrow produces a repentance, check this out, without regret. So I turn saying goodbye to this direction. I'm turning to this new direction. And I'm not regretting that I've turned from something and I've turned to something. You see, here's a definition of repentance. It'll be on the screen for you. Repentance is turning from sin and turning to God by faith in Jesus Christ. So what am I turning from? Sin, rebellion, A life of selfishness. A life, if we want to be probably perfectly defined, of self-government. I'm my God. I'm my Lord. I'm my boss. I'm my master. And I'm headed in this direction. And I've been called out on it. And I've been convinced that it's wrong. And it leads to judgment. And it leads to destruction. Not because God's a cosmic bully, but because he's righteous and holy. And in response to that, I turn. I'm convinced now that there's only one God. He's not me. I'm not him and I'm turning, I'm turning to God. I'm turning to him alone and I'm showing this by faith in Christ. While we're on the discussion of repentance, I want to give you a few more truths about it because as we'll see in just a moment with baptism, we need to clarify these terms so that we know what these terms are. So repentance is to turn from something and turn to something. But I want you to see In the scripture also, repentance is commanded by God. So this isn't optional. And when Peter's preaching this, it's in the imperative mood in the Greek. So he's saying, this is a command. This isn't optional. This isn't like for, if you want to be a little more, you know, deeper in your walk, repent. No, this is fundamental. You don't become a Christian unless you repent. Mark chapter one, verse 14 and 15 says, the time is near, the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel. Mark chapter 6 verse 12, he sent his apostles out, and the Bible says, "When he sent them out on a little short-term mission trip, he sent them out to tell people they should repent. We're here? What are you going to tell us? Repent. It kind of flies in the face of how we're told to do things nowadays, right? We're told to make things so nice and so comfortable, and God will adjust to us. No, God is commanding us to repent. In Luke chapter 13, verse 3, Jesus said, unless you repent, you will perish. Acts chapter 17, Paul on Mars Hill says, God commands people everywhere to repent. And Paul, later on, talking about his ministry in Acts chapter 20, verse 21, says, among the Jews and the Greeks, I called them to show repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this isn't optional. Repentance is commanded by God. But you know what's so amazing? See, see both sides here. It's a tough thing, but check this out. Repentance is a gift from God. The Bible says that. Just, just flip over to, to chapter five in Acts with me real quick. I just want you to see at least one of these. It won't be on the screen. So just uh, if, you, if you got a Bible, Acts five, look at what it says in verse 31, Acts five, 31. Talking about Jesus. Jesus is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So check this out. God is not only demanding and commanding repentance, God is granting the repentance that he commands. Isn't that good? That God helps us to repent. Because knowing us, we'll, we'll look for a skate hatch, right? <laughs> we'll look at a way to not Repent. And the Bible says that God grants this repentance. In Acts chapter 11, verse 18, which is a huge verse for all of us, Peter gets back from preaching the gospel to Gentiles and they get saved, and the Jews are like, dude, you ate among Gentiles. And so he tells them the story, and they get really excited. And you know what they say? God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. We're saved this morning because God helps us repent, God enables us to repent. God works in our hearts and brings us to a place of repentance. In 2 Timothy 2:25, 2, we're told to pray for our opponents and our enemies that God would grant them repentance. So on one hand God is commanding us to repent. But you see, the preaching of the gospel many times is to people who don't want to repent. <laughs> so God works in their hearts to enable them to repent. And some of you struggle How can I turn from my old life? How can I let go of this sin that destroys my life? Check this out. When you turn to him, he will bring that repentance. He will help you. He will strengthen you. He will, by his grace, enable you to kiss the old life goodbye. And when it sneaks up through the crevices and tries to bring you back, he will hold you fast. Repentance is not something that we do one time and never do again. When Jesus said it in Mark 1, he said, basically, repent today and spend the rest of your life repenting. I repented last night. Repented. I'll probably I guarantee you, I'll probably repent before lunch or after lunch. We find ourselves in a lifestyle, a lifestyle of, of fighting sin, but when we sin, guess what our response is? We repent. Lord, the the direction of my life is you. I've said goodbye to sin, and occasionally when I go that way, I turn back. God helps me and graces me. And let me just also mention this to you: that repentance is necessary for someone to be saved. It's, it's not optional. Now, check this out. This isn't a work. Now don't think it's a don't, don't don't get in your mind that repentance is a work. Now, this is why. Because if you right now were to say, I repent and I'm turning from sin, and let's say that you never sinned the rest of your life. And today was the hinge. Well, you, living the rest of your life sin-free, will never cover what happened before the hinge from today in the past. So all the repentance now doesn't cover that. Repentance is not a work, but God demands it. Why? So if there's Somebody that's on trial, let's say they stole a bunch of stuff, shoplifting, we'll make it semi-misdemeanor. They just go through and steal stuff. I don't know if that's a felony, tell me. Anyway, Um. so they're standing before the judge and they're, you know, condemned and trying to defend themselves and the judge is going through his mind how he's going to act the situation and... Maybe show a little, little grace. And and the person says, Well, I really wish you would let me off the hook because there's like four other stores I hadn't hit yet. And I can't go to jail because I need to go hit all these other stores. When I hit Walmart last time, you know, didn't get all the PS5 games I wanted. Can you just let me back out so I can go grab those? That, that's not repentance, right? Forgiveness can't be shown. Again, medical professionals can't help people who do not want to help themselves, who do not want to admit that they have a condition. When the, the day that I got COVID a, a year ago, I, I couldn't taste, so I went and got some like air freshener, and this is probably not good for my lungs, but I sprayed it and I just stuck my head in the middle of it. Couldn't smell it. We got a problem. Lauren said, you need to go to the doctor. If I would have just stayed at the house, because I had a rough case of of COVID. It was was rough. Um, It would have been rougher than what it was. And so here they are saying, what shall we do? That is not a heart that says, if Messiah comes again, we will kill him. That's a heart that says, we want our heart to be changed towards Messiah. So repentance is necessary. It's not a work, but it's necessary. So he commanded them to repent, which begs the question this morning, have you repented? Have you turned from sin? Has your attitude with sin changed? Has your relationship with sin changed? Has your relationship with God changed? Have you not only turned from sin, but have you turned to God? You used to hate him and love sin. Now do you hate sin and love God? We find ourselves people who are truly converted. Even though we will sin, Our heart has been changed towards sin. Our heart has been changed towards God. And now we desire him above all things. So Peter commanded them to repent. I want you to see third this morning. They also commanded the crowd to publicly identify with Jesus Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, this is a tricky one because many people have taken this verse and they have basically put, said, said a few different things. Number one, they've said that baptism brings about forgiveness of sin. So baptism is necessary. If you haven't been baptized, your sins haven't been forgiven. And so there's some denominations that if someone professes Christ, they will rush them to the church, even if it's like a Tuesday afternoon at 5.30, and they will baptize them in water because they don't believe they're saved until they actually go through the act of baptism. And you say, why do you believe that? They would point to Acts 2.38, and they would say, notice it says, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Some people would say uh, additionally that this is how you are saved. You repent, then you're baptized, and your sins are forgiven, and then you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we need to bring some clarity here. While, while asking ourselves, has this happened to us, we need to see the big picture. And so I want to I teach just for a few minutes about baptism. We, we were able to baptize someone uh, a few months ago. It's incredible. It's awesome. Man, we, we, should, we should be praying for people to be baptized, right? But we need to understand it. I think some of these churches sometimes it just, you know, it's like sign up, everybody get baptized. Nobody understands what's going on, but they feel emotional for three seconds because they went in water. We we need to know what baptism is. And and so our church, we come from more of a baptistic way of understanding, like we put you under the water. And, And the reason we put you under the water is because baptizo in the Greek literally means to immerse. And Jesus, when he was baptized, he came out of the water. Now, I'm not, I don't want to die on this seal. I'm just explaining to you, okay? I'm explaining to you why Ryan doesn't take like water and then pour it on somebody's head or he doesn't, you know, take a little shaker and salt you with water. Because the normative expression, the Greek word and the normative picture in the New Testament is them going down into the water, under the water and being brought out. And I'll show you why just in a second. So Peter is telling them that they need to be baptized. Now what's interesting here is that the phrase be baptized is just like repent. It's, it's in the imperative, so it's a command. This isn't optional. But he changes, because there's a crowd there, what shall we do? Repent and each of you be baptized. This is singular, which is really cool. Because he's not he he's saying that what I'm telling you is not optional for, for just some of you. It is something that needs to happen with all of you. Each to a man to a woman, you need to be baptized. But what's even more amazing here is that it's in the passive in the Greek. What does that mean? This is not something that I do for myself. This is something that I allow to be done to me. So here's the idea. You repent, you turn to God, and then you submit yourself to be baptized, which is big. I am submitting to what is being laid out to me. I'm not coming making rules for myself. I'm getting in the gospel line and saying, what needs to happen to me, I want it to happen to me. So this is a personal command. It's a command of surrender. And it was a unique command because most Jews, although we see in the ministry of John the Baptist, people were getting baptized. Jews, kind of general, the general thought among Jews was that only the the Gentile proselytes got baptized. So if I was, you know, a dude from wherever, and I'm convinced that the God of Israel is the, the, the true and living God, and I want to follow him, a few things got to happen to me. And one of those is I have to be baptized. So, so baptism, Christian baptism, wasn't like necessarily a new thought where there's water involved, but it was a brand new thought in, in that it was done in the name of Jesus Christ. So Peter looks at these people who, for a lot of them, thought that baptism was something only for the, the, uh, the, the people that, that weren't born of Abraham. He says, no, you as a Jew must be included in this. And what is it? You must be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So so let's look for just a second what baptism is, and then we can put all this together and what he's really getting at. What what is baptism? Baptism is a few different things. We're taught in the scripture first that that baptism is a public confession of faith in Christ. That's what it is. So that's why here at Crosspoint, whenever somebody gets baptized, we, we read their personal testimony. And that personal testimony may say several different things, but when you boil it down to it, it basically says, I came to grips that that I knew I needed Jesus. I was convicted. And, And I am turning to place faith in Jesus. I'm confessing him as Lord and Savior. I am trusting in what he's done on the cross in my place for my sin. I am believing upon him. So it's a public confession that I need Jesus And I'm trusting Jesus. And I'm confessing Jesus. It's a public confession of faith. Baptism also is a public picture of genuine conversion. It's a picture of conversion. It's a picture of what you're believing. Now think about this. So... In that tank over there, nothing special about that tank and nothing special about the water that goes in that tank. We don't like pour some, you know, pixie dust in that tank and mix it up real good. And I know the lights are good, but it's nothing from inside the water that's shining up. Okay, it's just water. But what a picture. What a picture first of what Jesus has done for me. Right? So what did Christ do? Christ died. He was buried. And on the third day he rose again. So what makes baptism possible? What Jesus did for me. Jesus died for me. He shed his blood for me. He sacrificed himself for me. He really died. He was buried. He didn't take a nap. He died. Praise God, on the third day, he rose again. But this isn't just a picture of what Jesus has done for me. This is a picture of what the Spirit's done in me. So just as Jesus died. Guess what? I'm, I'm dying to my old life of sin. I'm being buried with Christ. And just as Christ was raised from the dead, I am now being raised to new life. That's why baptism is such an awesome picture. That's why the Lord gave it to us. So this is already in their minds as Jews, but he's, he's redefining it. He's saying, listen, this is what Jesus did for you, and this is what the Spirit does in you. You die, and you are raised again to new life. So it's a picture of what happens to every single person that is a believer. True conversion. But it's also a public identification with Christ and his people. Because at the end of this passage, it says that they were added to their number about 3,000 souls. And so the reason why we baptize people publicly, we, we, we encourage baptism to take place in the local gathering is so that we recognize that this is a new family member. And they're being identified. We see them saying, hey, I'm with Jesus now. And at the same token, we say, hey, they're one of us now. And that's why we believe baptism takes place in the local church. They shouldn't just, you know, Not not in the building, but I'm saying in the assembly. So if we were to go out to Big Ten and have big baptism service, as long as the church is gathered, praise God, right? Because it's a way for this person to say to us, I'm with Jesus, and it's a way for us to say to this person, you're with us. It covers all the bases. So it's a great picture. It's It's a confession. It's an identification. And so Peter is saying, repent, But you must be identified with Jesus Christ. So when you're turning from your sin, you are turning to God in Jesus Christ. So this is an identification. Yes, he's calling for them to be baptized in water. But the bigger picture, y'all, is so that they can be identified as being marked in a relationship with Christ and with Christ's people. Then we get to the phrase, for the forgiveness of your sins. And we have to ask the question, okay, is he saying that unless they are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, they will not experience forgiveness of sins? Let me just tell you, and let me give you several reasons. Baptism does not save. Now, let me tell you why. This is so important. I'm glad we're covering this this morning. This helps us. How do we know that baptism doesn't save? Now, in saying this, I don't want to de-emphasize baptism or or cause us to lose the value of it, but we need to distinguish baptism to clarify it, to put it in its proper place. The New Testament does not teach that baptism has saving merit. So we would receive less grace if we weren't baptized than if we were. But I will tell you this, the the, the New Testament really doesn't know anything about an unbaptized Christian. Now, let me answer these questions and then just give you a few statements. on How do we know that baptism doesn't save? First, baptism is not mentioned as a condition elsewhere in Acts. I got a bunch of scripture up here. It'll be on the website. As soon as we walk out of here, you can go to the crosspointchurch.org. You can click guide by this sermon, and it's all there, okay? The point I'm making here is that when they preach the rest of the book of Acts, they don't tell people that they must be baptized in order to be saved. So we can't interpret it here as that. Baptism always accompanies the preaching of the gospel, but it's never set forth as, unless you are baptized, you won't be saved. I should mention, just to be faithful, that in Acts two six, when Paul is recounting his conversion testimony, Ananias does tell him, be baptized, wash away your sins, comma, calling on his name. In the Greek text, the emphasis is on calling on his name. The baptism is a picture that in trusting himself, calling on the name of the Lord, the sins would be washed away. Not in the actual act of baptism. Peter says this too. A lot of people will quote this verse. 1 Peter 3.21, baptism now saves you. And they'll stop there and say, see, baptism saves you. If they keep reading, Peter says, not like the washing of the dirt from the physical body. (laughs) But baptism is a picture that I am looking to Jesus alone for my salvation. The rest of the book of Acts, we we find a few more things about baptism. Why doesn't it say? Because baptism happens after belief. A few different places in Acts 8.12 and Acts 18.18, it says they believed and then they were baptized. They're not put together that they're salvific or they bring salvation. Also a few places in Acts, baptism did not bring the Holy Spirit. People were baptized and yet the Holy Spirit had not fallen on them. But probably the biggest kicker for me is when Paul is walking through with his drama family, the church at Corinth. <laughs> He's listing all the people that he baptized. And it wasn't many. And he, he, he says, I baptized this person, this person. And then he has like a personal side. He's like, oh, I, I think I baptized this person. Can't remember. But then he says this. He says, Christ did not send me to baptize. Christ sent me to preach the gospel. Now, why is that important? Because baptism is distinguished from the gospel. So if baptism is included in the gospel, it's necessary to salvation. But Paul says, listen, baptism happens after the gospel is believed. It's not part of the actual gospel. This is the gospel I delivered for you, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and on the third day he rose from the dead, period. And just... To make one further note, the Bible says, uh, if you're like, well, that's Paul and this is Peter, well, the Bible says in Galatians 1, Paul actually went up to Peter after doing ministry for over a decade, and he ran what he had been doing by Peter and James and John, and they gave him the two thumbs up. The Bible doesn't say they gave him the two thumbs up, but it's, it's there that they, yeah, keep going, brother, keep doing it. And so Peter and Paul aren't in conflict here. Baptism doesn't save. What is baptism then? It is an act of obedience to people that are placing their faith in Jesus Christ. So let me just say this. If you believed in Jesus Christ, if you've repented from your sin and believed and you're not baptized, check this out. It's disobedience, man. You're you're, you're not obeying Jesus. And and, and, and let me say this in a positive way. You're, you're, You're not experiencing the joy and blessing of obedience as you could so if you had not been baptized, but you've been born again, man, talk to one of us. We'd love to baptize you, and, and you could express your obedience to Jesus that way. But baptism is it's believer's baptism, those who have believed the gospel. And so how do we interpret for the forgiveness of your sins? <clears throat> if I get a headache, I, I, I take aspirin for it, right? I, I, don't, I don't take aspirin to get a headache, right? I take aspirin for it. So the way that we interpret the for here is it's almost like the sense of because or as a result of be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ because your sins have been forgiven as a result of your sins being forgiven. Repent, place faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your sins are forgiven and therefore express that reality by being baptized. That's the only interpretation we can take from this passage that matches the rest of the New Testament. So he calls them to identify with Jesus. Finally, this morning, he calls the crowd to believe God's promises. Repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, notice this and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and your children and for all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. So he's calling them to repent, to be identified with Jesus, to believe what God has said. Because what was being offered? What was the promise? First, first promise was the forgiveness of sins. That their sins would be forgiven. Can I tell you this this morning? Some of you who know Jesus really need to believe that your sins have been forgiven. Can I just say that to you? Lovingly, it's an insult to Jesus to keep bringing sins up to your heart that he has washed and forgiven and do not go to your account anymore. Some of you, you, you don't know forgiveness. Because every time your sins are brought before your face, there's guilt attached to it and there's eternal judgment attached to it because there is no mediator between you and God. And all that's left is wrath. But can I tell you, there is a mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And his sacrifice is not only for our sins only, but the sins of the whole world. And he is the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And if this morning there is no forgiveness of sins, you can turn from your sins and identify with him and believe in him and trust him as Lord and Messiah. And he will wash and blot out and not count your sins towards you at all in any way. This is a promise and he's calling them. Believe this. He also says there was a promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit. They could receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Isn't it amazing that God just doesn't give us forgiveness and God just doesn't give us blessing and God just doesn't give us peace. God gives us himself. And and Peter is saying here, what, what we just experienced a few minutes ago is for you too. We're not just like some elite group that God only shares himself with. This is for everybody. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 39, the promise is for you and your children. Notice this. It's not just for you. It's for your children. It's for those after you. No matter when you live, this promise is for you. And it's a promise for all those who are far off. Luke a Gentile here. He uses this term later on in the book of Acts. He's thinking about people that are not close, either in proximity or, man, they're all over the world. This is a a mission statement, this promise, to have sins forgiven and to receive the gift of the Spirit is for anyone, anywhere, anytime. Notice what he says. As many as the Lord our God will call to himself, There's a sovereign nature of salvation. So when we stand to preach the gospel, you can hear us as humans. And when you share the gospel with neighbors and coworkers and friends, there's the human side where you're saying, come to Christ, come to Christ, come to Christ. And man, sometimes it falls on deaf ears, but the Bible says, that oftentimes when we do it with our human voice, there is a deeper, sovereign, divine voice that is calling and summoning and inviting them. And if this morning, as I'm up here just reading from a book and sharing the truth of the word of God, if there's like an inward magnet that's tracking with you and you're drawn to this and you're convicted over your sin and you understand your need to turn, that is the call of God. And it's not something that we should take for granted. He didn't know it to us one time. And for some of us, he's been begging and calling and summoning us. Today, repent of your sin. Identify with Jesus Christ. Believe in him. Believe in him alone. I was encouraged as I read verse 40, and with many other words, he solemnly testified. That's my life verse, I guess. Many other words, right? Peter didn't stop here. He kept exhorting them. And what was he exhorting them? Be saved from this perverse generation. This is a broken generation. It's perverse. Look at what they did with the Son of God. And he would say the same thing to us today. Be saved from this generation. Be distinguished from this generation. Come while there is mercy. And this passage closes out in verse 41. So those who received his word, they were baptized. They obeyed. They didn't receive part of the word. They received the entire word. And it says they were added about 3,000 souls. What does this mean? That from this day, Peter and the apostles and the 120 believers, they looked at this crowd, at these people that were receiving the word, and they said, we belong to them and they belong to us. And what do you see doing? God putting his church together. Pentecost, right? Right? The giving of the law in the Old Testament, 3,000 people perished. But the giving of the Spirit in the New Testament, 3,000 people were saved. That's how our God works. Yesterday was my dad's 73rd birthday. And he was really happy because Southern Miss won. My mom made him a coconut cake. When I was in ninth grade, my dad was a A deacon. He was a Sunday school teacher. He had served on a, a bunch of different and a bunch of different responsibilities in a, in a Baptist church. He grew up in church. Back in the mid-70s, he was voted as the most devoted religious young man in Jones County or something. Whatever that is. But to think of Joe Johnson was to think of church and the Bible. And growing up, I mean, I would even call out for my dad and I would, he wouldn't answer and I would go in there and he would be sitting or laying on the ground. He'd have a book in front of him. He'd be praying for people. He taught me scripture, prayed with me at night. But I remember one October morning in 1997, mom and I and dad were sitting at the breakfast table getting ready. He's getting ready to take me to school. And he looks at us and he goes, so I got saved yesterday. We're like, what? And we didn't really have time to process all of that. Basically, my father began to share with my mother and I, and he shared with his local church too, that he'd grown up very religious and he had responded to the gospel you know, as a child, because other people were responding to the gospel, but his life had never changed. And as a religious man, he would have to hide his desire to sin. He couldn't exercise it, right? Because his thought life and his heart life didn't line up with someone that's been transformed by grace. Not to say that Christians don't think of sinful things or sometimes even desire to do sinful things, but As my dad began to read scripture, and I didn't really even know this, he had started, God had started working in his heart a year before. And so for an entire year, he had prayed and sought the Lord. And where am I? And this October 97, God brought it to a head and he went and talked to his pastor. And I'm so thankful that the pastor told him this. The pastor didn't try to talk him off and say, hey, you're the best dude I got. You're good. He said, Joe, don't. Neglect doing what God is calling you to do. And I was blown away by that. Because here's the epitome of religion. And yet there'd been no life change. And, and after that day, I mean, there was difference. And to understand that some of us Many of us, many people around us are just like the people in this crowd. That they're devout and they believe in Messiah and they believe in the concept of of God, but they've never repented and turned to God. Their heart has never been changed. They've never identified with what Jesus did in their place for their sin. the reality of what happens on the inside as pictured in baptism has never happened to them. And I would just simply tell you this morning, if the Lord our God is calling you to himself, repent and turn to Christ. His arm is not shortened that it cannot save. Your sins are not too great. He has died and shed his blood to bring you to God. Christians, as we wrap up Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving's always on our heart because of what God has done for us in Jesus. We don't deserve this, but he's made us this way. He's caused us to be born again. We need to ask the Lord too, especially as we engage in a holiday season coming up. Lord, who do you want us to take this message to? Not to stand from a distance and yell, repent, (laughs) but to love and pray. And when the time comes, point people to Christ. Let's bow in prayer. As many as the Lord our God calls to himself. Is that you this morning? Do you need Christ? You see your need for Christ? Look, what should I do? Repent. Be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you need him this morning, turn. There's no magic words. Repent. Turn to him. Plead his sacrifice for your sins. Ask God to have mercy upon you because of what Jesus has done for you. She might be a part of his body, the church. Christian this morning, it's hard for us to think of the cross and not be humbled and moved. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sacrifice, for enabling me to repent, for forgiving me of my sin, forgiving me your spirit. We're going to exalt him this morning. If you need to talk about Needing Christ, Justin and I will be at the back on either side of the sound booth. We'd love to talk with you. If you're a believer and Christ has changed your life and you haven't followed him at baptism, come talk to us. We'd love to encourage you to obey Jesus. If you're struggling this morning, you need prayer for something going on, we'd love to pray with you for that too. Let's stand. I'm gonna pray for us and then we will worship him. Lord, thank you for your word. Working in our hearts. So thankful to know you, God. To be known by you. To be people who are loved by God. To be people that have been purchased by God and people who are indwelt by God. Work this word in our hearts. Sanctify us in truth. Draw the lost to yourself. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.